You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. We've made it to Psalm 30. I wasn't with you last week. I was hanging out with our students at the FCA event. But um, Josh got to preach Psalm 29, which makes me sad because I love Psalm 29. And uh, I even thought about re-preaching it, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, I heard he did a great job. Um, But we made it to Psalm uh, chapter 30, and there's some good stuff in here. If you look there at your notes, there's a summary of the Psalms. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. Dr. Easley um, gives us that sentence to kind of summarize the, the major theme of the entire book of Psalms, 150 chapters. And as a reminder, the 150 chapters are in actuality hymns. They were written to be used in worship. And John Piper picks up on that when he writes, the Psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And so that gives us that kind of a, a baseline to consider what the book of Psalms is about. In Psalm 30, if I had to sum it up by a phrase, I would sum it up by saying this psalm is about the mercy of God, David's need for the mercy of God, and by extension, all of our need for the mercy of God. So here's what I want to do. I want to read the psalms, only 12 chapters. We're going to read the entire psalm. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dig in talking about God's mercy. Psalm 30. Notice it says, a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. So we get some information here about the setting in which this song was to be sung or used in worship. Then in verse 1, the Bible says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. And notice a little shift here. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. To the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we pause in this moment to ask that you would draw near to us to give us understanding of your word, that we might Lord, walk away with something practical that can help us and encourage us 
as we seek to live for you. So move in our midst, uh, Lord, again, by your grace and for your glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are four aspects of this psalm that I want you to see as, as we kind of walk through these four aspects. I think you'll see more about the, the setting or the context of this psalm. But the, the first aspect that we want to discuss is this. David speaks of an experience he had or experiences he had. He speaks of a specific time when he experienced three different things. All right. So first of all, he experienced the threat of death. That's what he's talking about in this text. He says there in verse two, he says, I will, or verse one, I will extol you, Lord, you have drawn me up, have not let my foes rejoice over me. Verse two, oh Lord, my God, I cried to you for help. You have healed me. So there's a, a healing that took place. Oh Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol. Sheol is the, the word for the place of the dead. And he said, you, you didn't allow me to go down to the dead, to, to the, where the dead are. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Same idea as going to Sheol. And look what it says in verse 9. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? And so David is, is, is talking to God. He's crying up to God. And it seems that he is experiencing the threat of death. You say, well, what? time period of David's life was this. Well, again, most of David's life, he lived under the threat of death. But I'm going to show you in a minute. I think we get some information here as to what the specific context is. But we know here he's dealing with the threat of death. He's also dealing with emotional turmoil. Look in verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night. Uh, it mentions there in verse 11, You've turned me from my mourning into dancing. You loosed my sackcloth, closed me with gladness. So there was a time where he was mourning. He put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was a rough fabric that people would put on to be a visual representation that they were in mourning. And uh, kind of like, you know, today mourners would wear black maybe at, at a funeral. It, same idea, the sackcloth signified uh, mourning. And he's going through some, some emotional turmoil. In fact, look in verse 7 where it says, you, the second part of that verse, you hid your face, I was dismayed. Everyone say that word, dismayed? It's a really interesting word in the Hebrew. Uh, it, it describes intense agony or even terror. It, it, it could be described as anguish. And David says the situation he was going through, he was dismayed. Intense agony, anguish, emotional turmoil. That's what he is dealing with in this psalm. So by the way, if you have ever found yourself or find yourself dealing with emotional turmoil, you're in good company. David dealt with emotional turmoil, and everyone eventually does. Third, David is experiencing distance from God. Distance from God. So there in uh, verse 5, the Bible says his anger is but for a moment. So David feels like he is under the hand of God, that God is angry toward him. Again, it gives us some context into the situation or some insight into the situation. Verse 7, he says, you hid your face. You hid your face. Now, 
Remember the blessing of Aaron in Numbers chapter 6. Make your face shine upon them. The, the high priestly prayer. Uh, make your face shine upon your people. To, for God to shine his face means to show favor and blessing. For God to hide his face means he is leaving you to yourself and not currently pouring out favor and uh, blessing. So he says you hid your face. So. What is the specific situation that David is talking about? Threat of death, emotional turmoil, distance from God. Well, as I studied this passage, I, I became more convinced this is talking about a specific situation found in 2 Samuel 24. So hold your place there, but turn to 2 Samuel with me. 2 Samuel 24 is near the end of the book. 2 Samuel chapter 24. The Bible says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel because of their rebellion against him. He incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So what that means is this. God was working along David's natural proclivities and allowing those proclivities to function or to be carried out. And he was going to allow David's sinful proclivities to happen so that he could bring judgment against Israel because of their rebellion. And notice here the proclivity. Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? So even Joab, the general, says, Why do you want to do this, king? Why do you want to number the people? This doesn't seem to be um, based upon David's desire for planning or, you know, um, organizing his military. That, that's not what is, is at play here. In fact, look what it says in verse 4. The king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan, began from Ariar, from the city that is in the middle of the valley, toward Gad and on to Jazir. They came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. They came to Dan and from Dan... They went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and all to the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. They went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But look in verse 10. Something interesting happens here. He gets the numbers of his fighting force. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Again, David's proclivity was to, to number the people from a sense of pride and arrogance. God allows him to do it. Even says he incites him to do it because he's going to bring judgment against Israel. But David here makes the decision to, to um, 
to carry out this census driven by his own pride. He says there, I've done very foolishly. So look in verse 11. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad. David's seer saying, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Anybody ever have a parent and they let you choose your punishment? Anybody ever had that happen? It's kind of cruel, isn't it? I mean, it's just like, you know, you choose your punishment. Boy, it plays tricks on your mind, right? What should I choose? Well, the Lord here gives David three options. And uh, David said to Gad the prophet, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So he's basically saying, I don't want to go with the three years of famine. I don't want to have to deal with foes pursuing me for three months. I'm just going to trust that if God carries out pestilence on the land, that he will be merciful. That is his, his hope. He says, his mercy, verse 14, is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. But notice verse 14, it says, David says, I am in great, what's the word there? Distress. So that kind of connects with Psalm 30. And then look in the next verse. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning and the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. So people are dropping like flies. God is sending this pestilence. People are dying. David felt close to death because he was being un under the judgment of God. That connects with Psalm 30. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. So David here feels distress. He's close to death. He feels distance from God because this is God's judgment against his sin. I believe this is the situation being dealt with in uh, Psalm chapter 30. So turn back to Psalm 30. We're going to come back to, to this passage in a minute. But turn back to Psalm 30. David experienced threat of death, emotional turmoil, distance from God. But secondly, David remembers when he pled for God's mercy. In this psalm, he remembers that situation. He remembers pleading for God's mercy. Look in verse 2. Oh, Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you healed me. I cry to you for help. And then look in verse 8. To you, O oh Lord, I cry. To the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? He, he's pleading to God. Now, a couple of things I want you to see about David's pleading for mercy. First of all, his pleading is desperate. He's crying out, Oh Lord, my God, I cry to you. Verse 8, I cry, I plead for mercy. His pleading is desperate. He wants God to show him compassion and mercy, even though he deserves judgment. And his pleading is God-centered. Notice what it says there in verse 9. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? In other words, David's saying, if I die, that's one less tongue praising you. And I want you to get more glory. So would you save me? Would you rescue me? So it's a God-centered uh, pleading for mercy. By the way, I think this is a good way to pray. A lot of times we say, uh, Lord, would you heal uh, so-and-so from their sickness? 
And the question becomes, well, why? Why did we want them healed? Well, so we can enjoy their company? Sure, that's good. But how about, God, if you heal them, it's another tongue praising you. It's another tongue worshiping you. It's another person living for you. Uh, they can't praise you in shale. So his pleading is God-centered. So David remembers when he pled for God's mercy. And when you find yourself in a situation where you are surrounded by trouble and you are experiencing emotional turmoil and, and, and distance from God, maybe because of some decisions you have made, it is a great time to follow David's example and plead for God's mercy. He's desperate. But third, the, the third aspect of the psalm I want you to see is this. David commemorates God's display of mercy. So, so David pleads for mercy, God helps. And David wants to commemorate how God helped him. He says in verse 1, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. You've not let my foes rejoice over me. In other words, if I would have died, my enemies would have said, good, David's dead. And now they can't do that. And so you have, you have spared my uh, life. He's commemorating what God had done. He says, I cried to you for help, verse 2, and you healed me. The pestilence didn't kill me. You healed me. You brought up my soul from Sheol. I didn't die. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. I didn't die. So he's commemorating God showing him um, mercy. But notice there's some contrasts in this psalm that are interesting. First of all, notice there's a contrast from God's anger to God's favor. Look in verse 5. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. So David's saying, I experienced the anger of God against my sin. But when you compare that moment of his anger to the expanse of his mercy and his grace, it's not even worthy to be compared. He's contrasting God's anger and God's favor. I like what Charles Spurgeon says about God's anger and God's discipline against our sin. He says, God puts up his rod with great readiness as soon as its work is done. He is slow to anger and swift to end it. Do you know that Hebrews chapter uh, 12 tells us that God disciplines us because he loves us? Just like a father disciplines their child that's disobedient. So for example, if I tell my kids not to play in the road and they play in the road, I know that they're in danger. So I, I may discipline them to get their attention to say, hey, don't go play in the road. The discipline is not fun. It's hard. It's hard to them. It's hard to me, but it keeps them from playing in the road. It's better for their life. And God is our father through Jesus. And if we know him as father, we can expect that when we, when we begin to go down the wrong path, we begin to go play in the road, so to speak, spiritually. God will discipline us sometimes to get our attention because he loves us, right? But he's not disciplining us just to be mean and capricious. He, I like the way Spurgeon says it. He's slow to anger and swift to end it. When his discipline accomplishes its purpose, God will bring it to an end because he's a loving heavenly father. So there's this contrast between God's anger and God's favor. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that the majority of my life, I've experienced God's favor more than God's anger. How about you? Secondly, there's weeping to rejoicing. Look in verse 5. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning because of the situation David was in. He was weeping. He was crying. He was crying out. 
And God intervened. God mercifully came to his rescue. God lifted the discipline. And now instead of weeping, he is rejoicing. There's a contrast there between weeping and rejoicing. A contrast between night to morning. Verse 5, he says, His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the what? Morning. So he's saying it felt like nighttime spiritually. I was under your heavy hand of judgment. But God, you, you, you showed me mercy. You lifted your judgment. You saved me. You delivered me. Now it feels like morning time. You ever, you ever had a bad day and you go to bed at night? It was just a bad day. Something hard happened. And you wake up in the morning and the sun's shining. And there's just something about that, right? It's like the sun came up today. And, and that's what David's saying. The sun came up. God has been gracious and merciful. I've gone from spiritual night to spiritual morning. But then there's a contrast between a moment and a lifetime. Look in verse 5. He says, His anger is but for a moment. Again, brief. His favors for what? A lifetime. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. So David recognizes this discipline is hard, but it's a moment. This discipline is, is debilitating, it's distressing, but it's a moment. By and large, my lifetime will be an experience of God making his face shine upon me. David here is commemorating God's display of mercy. I blew it, David said. I blew it. And I was under the heavy hand of God's anger and judgment and discipline but God was merciful and lifted that discipline off of my life. David commemorates God's display of mercy. But fourth and last, we see here that David celebrates God's mercy. So he commemorates it. He, he recognizes God's mercy in his life. But then David celebrates God's mercy. Look in verse 11. You've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth, clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. When God intervened in his circumstances, David responded with passionate praise. Now, how do you know his praise is passionate? Well, notice the word there in verse 11, dancing. You ever seen a person dancing that wasn't passionate? Have you ever seen that? I mean, if somebody cares enough to wiggle a little bit, right? They're passionate. And if you're and if you are so uh so overwhelmed by God's mercy and grace that you are dancing a dance before I know this is Baptist church, I get all that, but you're dancing a dance. I mean it's just in the Bible, but you're dancing a dance before the Lord, that's passion, right? That's excitement, that's joy. His joy could not be contained. And his joy was was really not um um it was not contingent upon those around him. He didn't really care what other people thought. He was just joyful over God's mercy in his life. He responded with passionate praise. And then this, this idea of celebration. When you experience God's mercy, and we all have, we all do, silence is not an option. Look in verse 12. That my glory, the word glory there means who I am. That my glory is almost like saying his soul that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. 
You've been so merciful. How can I be silent? How can I close my mouth and not extol your great name when you have been so good to me? When you experience God's mercy, silence is not an option. And so David experiences God's judgment. God delivers him from judgment. And then David is filled with praise and gratitude and thanksgiving. Uh, you, you, some of you have heard me tell this story before, but... Uh, in I was I was in college nearing my senior year, and uh, I was a Christian. I was I was saved when I was nine years of age, and uh, I, I knew the Lord. And I was in college, and my priorities had just shifted. They just shifted, and I had some things on my prior priority list, good things, but things that were on my priority list that were more important to me than Jesus. You ever had something on your priority list? That's more important to you than Jesus. Now let me let me just let me just drive a point home real quickly. If there's something on your priority list higher than Jesus, that thing is an idol. Because Jesus deserves first place. Colossians 1:18. All, in all things, he deserves the preeminence, right? And and just in my life, some things have shifted. And it, to be honest with you, in so, in in uh, in college, my priorities were. Soccer. I was a soccer player in college. Athletics, college athletics, and um, my girlfriend. All right. Her name was Claire. So you can see it turned out well. But anyway, and uh, those they were just real idols in my life. And and Jesus was not first place. I was not pursuing Him. My priorities had shifted. And so, without going too too much in detail, keeping us too long tonight. God took me through a very painful process. And I call it a, a, a season of brokenness in my life. God took some things out of my life and it was hard and it hurt and I was miserable. But I knew, I knew this is God getting my attention. This is God getting my attention. And he did. And, uh, and I, I remember during that whole process, my pastor shared with me a verse uh, Matthew six thirty three. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added. All the things you're worried about in life, God will take care of them if you seek the kingdom of God first. And I knew when He shared me that verse, Jesus was not the the first one I was I was seeking. I was seeking things other than Jesus. And so I remember I had that conversation with my pastor. I went back to my dorm room, and for the first time in months, maybe years. I opened my Bible to Matthew 6.33, and I got on my knees in my dorm room. And I just said, Lord, you've gotten my attention. You've taken me through some painful stuff. I, I'm, I feel broken. But I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to be number one in my life. And I got up off my knees and God began to work. He lifted his hand of judgment. He lifted his hand of discipline off my life. He got my attention. Remember what Spurgeon said, he's swift to end it. He, he, he lifted that hand, and then he began just to do stuff, like crazy stuff, like almost immediately Claire and I, who were not together, another long story, we got back together, got engaged shortly thereafter, got married shortly thereafter, went to seminary. He called me the ministry. I had no idea that was coming. And he did all these wonderful things in my life. And I, I, I feel like I experienced Psalm 30. Like God was, his hand was heavy upon me getting my attention. And when he got my attention 
And when I responded by fixing my eyes on Jesus, first and foremost, God lifted his hand and began to bless, 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 bless. I experienced uh, anger for a moment, but joy for a lifetime. Weeping in the night, but joy in the morning. I experienced those things. I experienced mourning turning into dancing and losing my sackcloth and being clothed with gladness. I experienced that. Like I lived, I lived this out. And I look back over that time and I say, thank you, God. Thank you for that hard time. Thank you for caring enough about me to get my attention. Thank you for caring enough about me to discipline me so that I would get my focus where it belongs. That is on you. So David speaks of a time when he experienced the threat of death, emotional turmoil, distance from God. David remembers when he pled for God's mercy. David commemorates God's display of mercy. David celebrates God's mercy. But there's one more thing I want to talk about. I want to go back to the very beginning of that psalm. Why in the world would this psalm be designated for the dedication of the temple? Why? Well, first of all, the temple was not built in David's life. His son Solomon built it. So this was a a song that David wrote in anticipation of the temple being built. And he intended that this song be sung at the dedication of that temple structure. Now, why? Why Psalm 30? How, why would this song be used to dedicate a new place of worship, a new building where the people of Israel would gather? Well, turn back to, to, to 2 Samuel. Turn back to 2 Samuel with me very quickly, chapter 24. I want to show you a neat connection here. And this is, again, why I believe that Psalm 30 speaks of this story in 2 Samuel 24. Look in verse 15. The Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. That's the third option David chose. From the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. This is God's heavy hand of judgment. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, that's where David lived, right? David was close to death. He felt like he was about to go to Sheol. The Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. God showed mercy. Now look at the next sentence. And the angel of the Lord, by the way, this war about to read ties into what's going on in, in Israel right now. All, the, uh, all of the, 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 the unrest going on there. Look what happens. David spoke to the Lord when he was um, what? Sorry, verse um, 16. The angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. All right? So this is a threshing floor where after the harvest, the grain would be uh, threshed and sifted uh, so it could be uh, bundled and used to, to make you know bread. And it says, David spoke to the Lord who when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So David's saying, Let me take all the punishment. I want to see innocent people die for my sin, my rebellion. And Gad came that day to David, the prophet, speaking on behalf of God, and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna Looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, 
Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. So I've come to, I've come to set up an altar to worship God. This will be a place that recognizes that we are sinners and we need God's mercy. Then Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. You know where the temple was built? Right on this spot. Right on this spot where David built an altar and said, God, show us mercy. And God showed them mercy and lifted up, uh, uh, up his hand of judgment. So I believe what David's doing here in Psalm 30 is saying this. When the temple's built, when it comes time to dedicate it, I want to show you how we got here. I want to show you how this piece of land is where it is in our possessions where the temple could be built here. And he's saying the, the, the history of this land on which the temple has been built is a history of mercy. A history of God showing mercy to guilty people. I built an altar. I, I, I offered offerings. The, the, the offering of offerings was to show that innocence must die for guilt. Again, pointing to Jesus Christ. And he bought that land, and on that land, that's where the temple was built. So I think Psalm 30 is just a way to say to the people of Israel as they dedicate the temple, hey, let me, let me give you a little bit of background about why the temple is here and why we possess this land. It's a story of God's mercy. That's why I believe Psalm 30 is meant to be sung at the dedication of uh, the temple. Now, that's a holy place, right? The temple where the Ark of the Covenant was housed in the Holy of Holies, holy place, holy of holies. And if you know the background, the history, there's been war between the Jews and other groups for centuries and, and the, the conflict revolves around this place, the Temple Mount, where the temple was built. Right now it's under Muslim control. There's a mosque. It used to be a church, but there's a mosque there on the Temple Mount, and that, is, that, that area is under great dispute. It's, it's a, it's a, I've been there. It's even standing there on the Temple Mount. is very, very tense. You can feel the tension uh, between um, the different religions and different groups. And, uh, and, and a lot of the, the conflict, I mean, all the conflict, really goes back to that, that, that conflict for this special place. But David commemorates this place as being a place where God showed his people mercy. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.